It is the most common surgery performed worldwide, the C-section. And although its history and first performance are still up for debate, there is no doubt that it wasn't until the 19th century, the mid to late 1800s, where great advancements in this procedure prevented maternal mortality from having it done. Although the first accounts of the C-section can be traced back to theoretical concepts in the Jewish writings called the Talmud about 3000 BC, most attribute the Caesarean section to the Roman law called Lex Reglia. This was around 500 BC. This Roman law forbade a pregnant woman from being buried with the child in utero. In case the child had any chance of being alive, the child was to be extirpated from the mother before burial. So, this procedure was widely known to be done on a perimortem or postmortem basis. But what about on a living woman? Well, in this podcast, we're going to cover the strange history and, to be honest, quite amazing background regarding this most common of all surgical procedures in modern day. In the turn of the 19th century, the mortality rate attributed to C-section was around 56% in the United States, 62% in Europe, and 72% in England. So let's say that again. Those are the mortality rates around the 19th century for C-section. Obviously now, mortality from C-section is rare, but it wasn't until the mid-1800s where changes in surgical technique made this C-section procedure much more tolerable in terms of lifespan for the woman. Now, until the mid-1880s, abdominal delivery was considered barbarous and criminal by most. That's why most argue and debate the first reported cesarean section in the year 1500. According to medical texts and medical historians, Jacob Neufer, who is a Swiss pig gelder, performed the first C-section on a living woman where the patient actually survived. This woman was his wife, who after hours of obstructed labor was unable to find relief despite the assistance of various midwives. The medical texts describe how Jacob Neufer approached the magistrates in his village for legal authority to perform the procedure on his ailing wife. After initially resisting, the magistrates finally gave permission as Neufer stated that his skills in husbandry made him qualified to do the surgery. Well, not only did she survive, but that child, who reportedly was born by cesarean birth, lived until the age of 77. What's more amazing is that the texts describe that that patient, his wife, went on to have five more children, including a set of twins, and they were delivered vaginally. So this was also the first case of vaginal birth after C-section. However, because the story was not accounted for and written down until the 1580s, some questions its authenticity. Nonetheless, Jacob Neufer is in the history books in the year 1500 and is still credited as doing the first C-section on a living patient where the patient survived. 
before the advent of anesthesia in the 1840s, early cesarean sections were performed without anesthesia. That's right, these were done under barbaric conditions. Without anesthesia, patients suffered tremendously. The skill of the surgeon was measured by speed, not necessarily by technique. Now, it wasn't until the mid-1880s where, during the surgery, if the woman did not die from exsanguination, she would surely die from acquired fever and infection. Prior to the 1880s, entrance into the abdomen and the uterus were attempted in every conceivable site and method. But without proper suturing and with non-sterile instruments, the women almost always were doomed to death. Let's start our review with the advent of anesthesia. William Clark first used ether for a tooth extraction in 1842 in New York. Crawford Williamson Long then implemented anesthesia with the use of ether for a resection of a neck tumor again in 1842, this time in Georgia. Another pivotal player in the use of anesthesia was Morton, who continued this head and neck dissection with the use of ether as an inhalational anesthetic. The use of ether spread to the pioneering physicians in Europe. James Simpson, a Scottish obstetrician, first used chloroform for anesthesia in childbirth. Both ether and chloroform were used as anesthetic agents for C-section during the second half of the 19th century, although chloroform was used much more frequently. Epidural anesthesia in obstetrics was actually first introduced by Kreese, a Swiss obstetrician, in 1900. And Walter Stockel, a German physician, also proposed it in 1909. Now, there were only sporadic reports of subarachnoid route for anesthesia for C-section as early as 1901, and it obviously didn't take hold until much later on in the 20th century. Still, general anesthesia for C-section was almost universally applied up until the 1950s. An important consequence of the ability to anesthetize a patient was that it allowed for surgeons to slow down. Real-time notes could then be taken and figures drawn to display technique, which could be discussed, compared, and evolved for better patient outcomes. Okay, now that we've laid down that foundation, by introducing anesthesia, let's get into the different techniques of C-section, starting with Eduardo Porro and the Porro C-section from 1876 in Pavia. Let's do that next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the advent of ether, C-sections became more tolerable, literally, and allowed surgeons to slow down. The earliest of these developed C-section procedures was by an Italian obstetrician, Eduardo Porro, in 1876 in Pavia. It soon became a widely popular procedure throughout Europe. The Poro operation involved amputating the uterus above the level of the cervix. Yep, that's a super cervical hysterectomy after the baby was removed through a uterine incision. 
The amputation was achieved by placing silver wire around the cervix and then tightening it until it basically necrosed the isthmus and the fundus of the uterus off the stump. The cervical stump was then marsupialized by fixation to the lower margin of the abdominal wound. With removal of the uterus, the risks of postpartum hemorrhage and infection were significantly reduced, of course, at the sacrifice of the woman's fertility. But for the first time, more women were surviving the operation than not. The Poro operation has undergone several modifications from 1870s to about the 1880s. Nonetheless, the Poro procedure remained an operation that, quote, sacrificed a part to save the whole, end quote, as was described by Poro himself. Now, its popularity started to wane and the development of other operations, especially since many couples wanted more children, these other procedures came to the forefront and gained much more popularity and notoriety. The movement to preserve the mother and her uterus, as well as the fetus, developed and continued in the ensuing years. The German gynecologist Max Sanger, from where we get the Sanger classical C-section, sought a method to enter the uterus using aseptic technique and minimizing bleeding. He perfected the procedure in 1882 and subsequently became known as the father of the operation, currently turned the classical C-section. In this operation, the abdomen and peritoneal cavity are entered and a high midline longitudinal incision is used to gain access to the uterus for removal of the child. Initially, the abdominal incision was huge enough to allow for exteriorization of the uterus and the fetus prior to the uterine incision. So the original classical C-section mobilized the uterus out of the abdomen prior to delivering the child. Now later, the uterus was incised in situ and the abdominal incision was made smaller. Now we can't stress this enough. Max Sanger's contribution to obstetrics was revolutionary because prior to his description of his procedure, the hysterotomy was left unsutured. So the most revolutionary feature of the Max Sanger C-section was actually suturing of the hysterotomy. Again, this was not done beforehand. So it should be noted that Sanger was not the first to actually advocate uterine sutures. They were first described by Jen Liebus, who was a French surgeon about 1789. Remember, Max Sanger's C-section was in 1882. But Jen Liebus didn't actually perform the procedure like Max Sanger did. Spencer Wells from England in 1865, about 20 years before Max Sanger, also proposed closing the hysterotomy. But in the 1890s, maternal mortality after abdominal delivery because of this suturing of the hysterotomy actually fell for the first time to below 20%. So Max Sanger's contribution not only gave us a classical C-section, but closure of the hysterotomy. This was done with silver wire. Now, before that, it was thought the uterine contraction by itself would aid hemostasis. Obviously, that wasn't the case as mortality was so high. But once again, with the advent of the Sanger C-section, maternal mortality was now under 20%. 
poor results were obtained with those women who developed infection nonetheless. Intra-abdominal adhesions were common following this surgery, mainly because of the type of suture that was used. Furthermore, it became evident that the uterus could rupture in a subsequent pregnancy by going up and down on the uterine wall. Now, around this same time, the late 1800s, a third operative technique. So we have the Poro as the first, the Max Sanger as the second, and now comes the third. This is by a German gynecologist named Ferdinand Kieher. Now, that's not Kerr, which we'll get into in a minute, but Kieher, that is K-E-H-R-E-R. He was at the University of Heidelberg. Remember the time frame here. This is before the advent of antibiotics. So one of the greatest fears was entering the peritoneal cavity with the resulting risk of peritonitis. Now, years earlier, in 1824, Philip Physick, considered the father of American surgery, was a leading figure to propose that a portal of entry to the lower uterine segment could be made by separating the unopened lower sac of peritoneum. In other words, making a bladder flap. Yet he never actually performed the surgery himself. Keher, however, adopted his approach by performing the technically difficult dissection outside of the peritoneal cavity to obtain an accessible window on the lower cervix. So he didn't actually create the bladder flap that we're so used to now, and that's actually not even performed anymore in modern C-sections, but he actually did a retroperitoneal dissection to access the lower uterine segment. Now, it is possible that the Keher C-section actually was this first transperitoneal or retroperitoneal approach, which actually led to reduced bleeding. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now look, this is a weird story because doing the first retroperitoneal C-section using the low uterine segment is revolutionary, right? But Keher never reached prominence, perhaps because he was later criticized for performing non-indicated operative sterilizations on women. Wow. So even back then, there were some shady characters. Nonetheless, Keher is recognized as performing one of the first low transverse cesarean sections. Now, in 1912, again, so now we're in the early 20th century, another German gynecologist, Kronig, that's K-R-O-N-I-G, developed a technique for entering the abdominal cavity to access the uterus through a low vertical incision in the lower uterine segment. This is where we get the low vertical C-section from Bernard Kronig. All right, this brings us now to Monroe Kerr, K-E-R-R, from where we get our modern low transverse C-section. All of the prior surgeries discussed up to this point had their advantages and disadvantages, and each had its own school of proponents and adversaries. But it took the ingenuity and the capability of John Monroe Kerr to extract the most important elements of the work of his predecessors. He was the first physician in the United Kingdom to extensively publicize the superiority of the lower uterine segment approach. So he is credited with changing practice away from the classical uterine incision to a low transverse one. 
In Kerr's own words, as he described his procedure, quote, I make no claim to originality in regards to the incision, but I recommend it only because I believe that the scar that results will be less likely to rupture in subsequent labors. Can you believe that? Remember, we're talking about the early 20th century, the early 1900s, and Kerr is already thinking about future VBAC success. John Monroe Kerr was born in 1868 at Glasgow and received his medical education in Glasgow, Dublin, Vienna, and Berlin. In 1900, he was appointed to the University of Glasgow, where he remained on the teaching staff for 40 years. He was particularly interested in the contracted female pelvis and its treatment options. He may not have been satisfied with the Sanger operation and therefore became convinced that the lower uterine segment would be the safest place of entry into the uterus. He was successful in combining the readily accessible entry into the perineal cavity followed by a transverse incision into the lower segment area. He noted that there was much less hemorrhage, quicker convalescence, and lower incidence of abdominal adhesions. Now, look at the forethought that he had. He noted that the risk for uterine rupture was lower in subsequent pregnancies, negating the saying by Cranin of the early 1900s, who stated, quote, once cesarean, always a cesarean. So, John Monroe Kerr not only is credited as being the founder of the low transverse C-section still done today, but also as one of the earliest proponents for vaginal birth after C-section. In 1926, Kerr added yet another improvement to his original technique, a curved transverse incision in the uterus with the convexity directed downward. The object of this line of incision was to lessen the risk of injuring the uterine vessels. It was the Canadian-born Louis Panoff who wrote in 1931 that this transverse incision had many distinct advantages. Namely, it avoided encroaching on the uterine musculature and allowed placing the incision entirely in the lower uterine segment. Additionally, this curved incision prevented entry into the uterine branches of the uterine arteries. So the brilliance of Monroe Kerr's surgery was remarkable. He was a prolific writer. His renowned book, Operative Midwifery, later titled Operative Obstetrics, was first published in 1908. This was followed by many updated editions. He was frequently quoted in medical journals. His eminence as an obstetrician and gynecologist was recognized throughout the world. He was known as having great wit charm and humor and was always approachable. Above all, he had his fame as an incredible teacher of the medical healing arts. Due to Monroe Kerr's personality and persistence that the lower transverse C-section was superior to any of its advantages, it became and continues to be the accepted standard. Now, although the percentage of women undergoing C-section varies dramatically worldwide, there's no doubt that in the U.S. and Brazil, it's still hovering around 30%, making it one of the most common major operations in the world. Modern C-section techniques are still evolving. Not only do we have the traditional abdominal entry of sharp dissection described by Fanestiel, but now, of course, there's more blunt entry techniques like the Mishkavladic and the Pelosi C-section and even the Joel Cole entry technique. 
All of these have their distinct advantages and, some would argue, disadvantages. But nonetheless, we have definitely taken the most common laparotomy and attempted to make it more minimally invasive by use of smaller incisions, atraumatic circular retractors, and quicker recovery, including enhanced recovery after C-section pathways. Podcast family, I think medical history is just intriguing, remarkable, and inspiring. So thanks for taking this walk with us down C-section's historical past. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.